My name's Gary Souter. Welcome to Man Marking. We're asking, where's the talking, lads? You only get into, out the game where you put into it, Shelley. Mm-hmm. And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. Do you regret that at all? Oh, yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much. Yeah. Somebody said the football is a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. Back once again for the Renegade Master. Welcome to Man Marking. My name is Danny Reid and I've got Ryan Pulford and Anthony Olsen in the virtual studio with me today. Chaps, how are we doing? I'm at a slightly fragile from um, having my first night out in months. But with that intro, mate, I all of a sudden feel okay. So, yeah, good. Lion, love it. And what about you, mate? Uh, yeah, no, that intro, it's got me going. It takes me back to... Uh... To listening to MC Smalley on a D five hundred in school, so um, <laughs> absolutely what, flying what, now, mate. What, one for the teenagers there, one for the teenagers. <laughs> so this week's episode was with Gary Souter. Yeah, okay. So my name's Gary Souter. I'm an associate professor in nursing at the University of Leicester, um, and more importantly, I'm a lifelong Doncaster Rovers fan. Well, it, it covers my main uh, two main passions. Um, like I said, I'm, I've always been a lifelong football fan. Um, and I'm a mental health nurse by background, so everything I do work-wise is, is mental health focused. And being a man as well, I'm really positive about men speaking up and accessing help. Um, so it, it just, I think what you're doing is absolutely brilliant, and it just ticks all the boxes for me, just to try and get that message out there, not just about the work I'm doing, but mental health in football for people in the game and obviously people who watch and, and listen to the game as well. So before we get to Gary, we've got our opening question. Nick Pope pull out some wonderful saves and a goalkeeper masterclass at Anfield to earn barely a point. So what I want to know from you lads, and Ryan, I'm going to start with you, mate. What I want is, what is your top goalkeeping moment? Do you know what, Dan? I was, when, when we get asked these questions, I was trying to think a little bit outside the box and go with something a little, a little bit different. But you I want to think inside the box with a goalkeeper, though, presumably. Ah, yeah, good point. But I thought, you know what, in terms of my lifetime, he gets a lot of stick, Jordan Pickford. But I feel like when he saved that penalty against Colombia, it was like a huge moment in like football and English football and history with our recent ill-fate and penalty shootouts. And it was just a great moment, especially as in that shootout, we obviously missed the first penalty. Um, and it looked like we were just going to uh, succumb to another penalty shootout, heartache. So when he pulled that save off and we go on to win it, it just it was just like one of the best days ever. I remember going going out to town after it and everyone was just buzzing. It was just class. So I think considering he's the butt of a lot of jokes, even Pop brought up the unfortunate sponsor last week. I thought that was a class moment to to yeah. save that penalty. So I'm gonna go with Pickford against Columbia. Three each after four each. Back up. Pickford stops it. Eric Dyer places the ball on the spot. And England win on penalties. History in itself for this new team, new territory. The last 
last eight of the World Cup, and who knows where beyond there. The lovely one that takes me right back. Takes me right back to that evening. Yeah, sweaty in the pub, jumping around with the lads. Tremendous. I was with you that evening, wasn't I, Ant? Yeah, um, you were me. Yeah, yeah. We were. We we shared a hug. Um, <laughs> we will say nothing more about what proceeded afterwards. But there you go. And do you want to tell me what your top goalkeeper moment is, mate? Yeah, just thinking of Jordan Pickford. He gets a bit of a raw deal, doesn't he? Anyway, um... <laughs> was there a joke in there somewhere? <laughs> it's because you call them little T Rex arms, don't they? So, <sighs> never mind, eh? Um, anyway, no, you know, you uh... left that joke back in the Cretaceous period. It's good. It's good knowledge. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, David Seaman. Uh, I think it is it semi final at Old Trafford against Sheffield United. Yeah. Paul Pesky Solido is on an absolute winner. He's got the ball coming to his head and he's thinking, I'm going to score. I'm going to make Neil Warnock the happiest man alive. Uh-huh. And then David Seaman's big paw grows <laughs> about 12 foot and just drags this ball from the line and then out. And Arsenal go on to win the game. And I think he went on to win the cup that year as well. Can they find a cutting edge? The Sorba, Pesky Solano, off the line! Oh, and then Brown hitting it hard. Well, Jackie Alcarada at the finish. Goodness me, how did that not go in? What a scramble. Pesky Solano, and it was somehow kept out by Seaman. That is a fantastic save. Don't think that's it. Right on the line, or above it anyway. It was absolutely phenomenal. And you know when you, you you're looking at these like goalkeeper moments and and obviously the most famous ones probably Gordon Banks and you're thinking how on earth have you done that 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 was one of those moments Seaman shouldn't have got anywhere near it anywhere near it and I think he was coming to the end of his career as well so he wasn't exactly as sprightly as he as he used to be uh, I think we saw that in the World Cup with uh, Ronaldinho but it was just phenomenal absolutely phenomenal and I think he still had the touch as well. Oh, he did just glorious, glorious. That is, that's a great choice. I love that save. I'm surprised neither of you went for him, which I'm probably sure you attempted to. But like Ryan said, thinking outside the box, didn't go for the old Jimmy Glass. Well, that might have been a might have been might have been. Yeah, a, it's a bit it's a bit transparent, that though, isn't it? You know what I mean? oh, for crying out loud! Uh, um, you can see that coming a mile off. <laughs> <laughs> Jiminy Cricket, um. The, the other one that I thought of, which is kind of... You've kind of both gone for glorious moments for goalkeepers there where they've they've really become the hero. The one that's, that came instantly to my mind, and it's probably just because it was around the time that I first properly started watching football, was do you remember that game when United were playing West Ham and the Canios threw on goal and Fabian Barthez tries to pretend that he's offside and stands there with his hand up for ages... And then the Canio just completely blanks him and just slots it in the bottom corner and runs. Yeah. Our matching. De Canio. Is he onside here? Will it count? Yes, it does count. And it's the Italian magician who creates the possibility of the cup upset of the round. West Ham go in front at Old Trafford with 15 minutes on the clock. And Manchester United are left looking to the linesman. Every Manchester United player's arm went in the air. Barthez never even attempted to stop it. Di Canio rightly went on. Look at Barthez looking to the referee. 
Well, whether he's offside or not, you have to question a keeper of Barthez standing, assuming that the referee's whistle will blow. And that's what he did. That, that, I always thought that was amazing because, you know, because Barthez is always a bit of a character and Di Canio is a questionable character, but a character nonetheless. And it was just like, he was proper trying to kid him and Di Canio was just like, proper don't care, mate. I'm just going to boot it in the goal anyway and run off. <laughs> and, and and so he did. <laughs> but there's another uh, Di Canio goalkeeper moment, isn't there, when he could have tapped the ball in. Oh, Paul Gerrard, was it? Yeah, that was, I was going to ask you, can you remember the keeper? You've done well there. Uh, anyway, enough of that, chaps. We've got Gally on today. And first of all, do you want to tell the, the lovely listeners why we wanted to speak to Gary? Well, uh, the name Gary is uh, dying out, so we thought we'd best ask and interview someone called Gary, just you know, just to keep it, keep it relevant. Um, no, but seriously, we... We saw that Gary was doing his his PhD on mental health in football. Um, it's not the exact title, but um, just having a little look and, and going pretty in depth and, and getting interviews with players and seeing what the conditions are like. And it was a really interesting topic, and it, it kind of, you know, it fitted our our MO as it, as it were. And you know, when we spoke to Gary, he's a lovely guy, and and it was great to listen to. It was great to have that um, academic you know, insights into the game as well. Yeah, absolutely. And given that he's obviously a, a mental health nurse, it, it kind of gives that sort of little bit of a clinical aspect to it as well that he was able to shed a bit of light on. Ryan, we always have a theme. Do you want to give us the theme for this episode, please, mate? Yeah, of course. So the theme for this episode is taking an academic look at mental health in football. So that's enough from us, ladies and gentlemen. You are listening to the Man Marking Podcast. And this is Gary Suter's interview. So, Gary, you're a mental health nurse, uh, nurse and academic at the University of Leicester. Could you give us a bit of a background to your how you got into nursing? Oh, yeah, yeah, of course I can. Um, well, it all came around from football, really. So probably when I was about 17 or 18, I wanted to be a football coach. I've always played football and always been interested in, in it. Um, and I wrote to my local um, professional football clubs in South Yorkshire at the time, asking for some volunteering experience. And only one that was, I think that was Doncaster, Barnsley, Rotherham and two Sheffield clubs. And it was only Doncaster that got back to me and offered me that chance. So for a few weeks, at, around about that point, um, I was going down to, I say this, it's a strange to say this, but to their centre of excellence. But at the time, there were, this would have been about 90, 97. So linking Doncaster Rose with excellence is a bit of a push, really. Um, <laughs> but I was going down and, and, and trying to get involved and um, had that opportunity. And then I remember we said, one of the coaches at the time said to me the week after to prep a session and they'll give me the opportunity the following week to, to do it. And then the week after, a different coach came along who, in his warm-up, did half of what I was planning to do. So I probably wasn't as confident as I needed to be, really. So I, I kind of passed on that. But by getting into the coaching side, I did, a, um, I think, the under-16s coaching world with the FA. I also then did the treatment and management of injury courses. And I think at the time there was a basic one, an intermediate one, and then the next level was a diploma. So I started to think about being a physio and had a look around. And I don't know if it's right, but at the time, lots of um, football clubs were only taking chartered physios. So I thought, well, rather than do this diploma course, I might as well look at going to university and train to be a physio. 
So that was a plan. And I went to night school for a couple of years because I used to be a car valeter during the day, um, cleaning cars for Mercedes and Jeep and doing that kind of work. And I went to night school for a couple of years. And then physio didn't work out. I went to, I don't know how much you know about the university system, but I went to a clearing and had a big interview at Huddersfield for a physio post. And the, the main that I was in, and then I drove home and then I got a phone call saying I wasn't in. So I was a bit upset by that. Yeah. And then at Sheffield Hallam afternoon, and they had nursing. And so I had that, a quick conversation over the phone. Um, I knew I didn't want to work with children. I wasn't overly fussed about adult nursing, but I was interested in mental health nursing. So I just went along the day after, had a five-minute conversation over a cup of tea, and I was off the place on a nursing course. And I've just gone from there, really. Kind of fell into it and never looked back. That's really, that's quite a, a, a good story. That's quite, not the, the most natural route, but, uh, you know, getting football to get yeah, you into Yeah, it's not the normal one. Yeah, getting football to get you into your current day job was, that's quite, it's quite nice to hear. And obviously it's even more nice to hear that you managed to, Get a get a cup of tea and like a proper Yorkshireman whilst you were doing it. Exactly, I've got a cup of tea now while we're talking because that, that's how it works. A tea and a chat—that's always the way forward. Could you tell us what a mental health nursing academic does? Okay, um, so for example, in, in my current role, I'm a program lead for. So at Leicester, we have a four-year master's course in nursing with leadership and dual registration. And it's the only kind in the UK having it set up that way. And basically what that means is at the end of four years, they will be able to register as a mental health nurse and also either as an adult nurse or a children's nurse, depending on their choice. So I oversee the whole course. Um, so part of the work I do, I have to plan the timetables, um, support the other staff, deliver the teaching, support students out in placement when we're out in the NHS on, on different wards. And also try and get involved in research and, and keep up to date with the latest development so I can pass that over to our next generation of nurses, really. Yeah, it, it's good. So obviously I've, I've got a group of students to look after. We're a new course, so we're growing all the time. Um, whereas previously I worked at Sheffield Hallam and I was a course leader for nursing with about 2,000 students. So Leicester, I've got a lot less, but it means I can be a bit more hands-on, which is what I enjoy. That sounds excellent. Um, so... You're currently doing your, your PhD at the moment. Can you give us a bit of a background to that? Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm looking at professional football and mental health, but with a focus on first-team footballers. So different bits of research I've seen in the past. Other sports do really good stuff. Um, I don't know how much you know about this, but rugby and cricket seem to be really good with their elite athletes. Um, and then obviously we've got the PFA with all the work the PFA seem to do. But my view, as I'm not in the football industry, I wasn't, I'm not overly convinced about this. We offer a 24-hour phone line. But my view is if, if I'm experiencing, uh, let's, say, let's say I've got suicide ideation and then I, I build up the courage to go online and I'm given a, a phone number and then if I've got the courage to phone that and it goes to a voicemail or answer machine, personally, that's no good for me. Um, so I start to look into it a bit more and we seem to have lots of, work in, um, lots of support there for young players, um, you know, academy players and and players on the way up. And then you see all these things in the media and the, the books and stuff of all the former players who have released autobiographies or have gone public with stories, but there didn't seem to be much going on for first-team footballers. So I tried to look into that a bit more. Um, I did go to do a presentation at Doncaster Rovers, actually, a few years ago um, and delivered a session to the whole of their first team. 
and it went down really well. I got some really good feedback from it. Just talking about the, the key issue, key mental health issues in football, really. Um, and then I, I tried to, my initial plan was to try and interview as many first team Doncaster Rovers players as I could. But people save your interest, but actually pin them down to a, a time and date. You, I don't know, you might have the same issue with this. It's usually a challenge. So I kind of opened it up to a wider net, really. So I'm a few years down the line now, and I've interviewed 18 current first-team footballers across the Football League. Um, to Again, to talk about their issues in mental health or their experience of mental health within football. And then gradually from that, built up, um, I've done all the data analysis and built up five key themes from that. So the plan is um, to obviously keep working on it, write up these themes, and gradually get things published as I go on to try and make some recommendations to improve um, the services within football or help either players come forward and talk about their issues more comfortably or to provide more support and more services uh, within the sport. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I mean, sounds really noble yeah. as well, really. Um, you mentioned that you, you've only spoken to 18, well, I say only, 18 first-team players. Yeah. Um, has it been hard to get them to, as you said before, hard to pin them down to a date, but has it been hard to get them, when you do get the chance to speak to them, to, to open up a bit? Yeah. Um, when I get to speak to them, they've been brilliant. And I think part of that is because they're obviously engaged and, and willing to talk about the issues. And I think part of that is because of my um, mental health nurse training, uh, because of the skills that I've developed over the course of my career. The hardest thing has been actually getting them to that time and date. So when you, you, you kind of went there with just 18, but my work is qualitative, so I'm looking at lived experiences. So 18 is actually a really good number. Yeah. You know, if you're doing a survey, that's yeah. a small number. So 18 is really good. Um, some players that I chased for a long period of time. So I've used Twitter and LinkedIn, really, as my means of recruitment. And I've put adverts out there. If I've seen a player who has gone public to talk about issues or have liked a particular tweet or responded to something about mental health. I've tried to um, send them a message or follow them. And I can clearly think of one player who I sent him a message early on and he agreed, but it took me over a year to actually pin him down to a face-to-face -face, face meeting and to um, have that conversation. But when, been... like I say, when we sit down... <laughs> sorry, go on. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, it must have been pretty rewarding when you actually got him down to speak. Yeah, it's, it's really good because I'm persistent. So I'll keep sending messages until they turn around and say no. Then that gives me the go-ahead to keep nudging away at them. Um, and over time, I built up a bit of network. So you start talking to one person, then you try and say, well, if you know anybody else, will they be involved? Um, but I've, I have. I've, I've been resilient and persistent and just, just kept trying. Every now and again, just send another message. Um, I can think of another player who kept saying yes, and it never happened. I must have messaged him every couple of months and he kept saying, I'm saying, yeah, I'm busy at the minute, but I'm definitely interested. And it sometimes it just doesn't work out. And then what I found as well, because initially I wanted to do it face to face, because I think you have that um, a better conversation that way, because you get to see all the non-verbal stuff and, and, and you can just get to know them a little bit better. But because of I opened up around, um, around the country, with my work commitments as well, it, say, for example, if, I don't know, someone from... Exeter or or Yeovil or somebody was interested. It's a bit hard for me to jump from where I am to get down there. So then I've done a few by Skype and Zoom, uh, a couple over phone, and that I've had particularly last year. I had a run of 
a few interviews in a couple of weeks because I must have got it at the right time. Um, you know, where people are interested, I've got a bit more time on my hands. Yeah. So I've done quite well so far. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds really good. Just touching on that, you know, we've had a, a bit of a run here as, as well due to the lockdown. So and we know how hard it can be to try and yeah. get people to, to come and speak. But what we found is people are becoming more able to talk to, about the mental health. Have you found that to be the case? Um, yeah, I've, I've had a few. Again, there's a few who I've, I've seen I've go public or, like I say, get involved in conversations online. They've been great. Again, it's taken me a bit of time to um, get them to a time of day, but they've just, I've set the question to start with and we've just kind of poured the story out. Because I normally start with, tell me your um story you know from the from when you started to the present day so that gets them comfortable and we'll tell you all kinds of stuff um there's had there has been some players who are willing to get involved but they want to make sure it's completely confidential which all is anyway and that's absolutely fine yeah but some do want that bit of reassurance yeah. um and and some like i say i think the ones who are engaged and agreed to have a conversation sometimes it's hard to keep them quiet because we're just so engaged and open with it and we just tell you everything that's um, that's I had, some of them, certainly some of the early ones, like, like I say, face to face. I've never met these people before. We, um, I managed to get them into a room, um, got my phone out to record it on, set some questions, and they were telling me all kinds of stuff, um, personal stuff about themselves, about their families. And I'm just thinking, and part of it, the stories are quite sad, but at the same time, it's great for my research. I'm like, yeah, okay, keep going. Um, and then at the end of it, because of my nursing skills, I've just got to make sure that they're in a safe place before um, they leave the interview and go back out again. Because obviously, when you're talking about difficult experiences, particularly about mental health, I'm really conscious that I don't want to trigger off um, any negative feelings and or set them down a path where they don't particularly want to go. So it's trying to get that balance, really. Absolutely, and that sounds really interesting. I just want to go back to, to your relationship with football as a whole. Um, can you tell me what that's like for yourself? Um, well, for like I said, I'm 42 now. So since I was about 13, I was finally allowed to go and watch Doncaster Rovers play um, live. I used to like watch football as a, used to be a Liverpool fan as a young kid. You know, when it was like John Barnes and Ian Rush and yeah. Peter Beers in yeah. the good old days. Um, but then when I first went to watch Doncaster play, that was it. I was completely hooked. Um so they come before everything, really. They come before work. Um, I've joked to my wife that never give me that ultimatum because Rovers were there before her. They'll be there after her. So <laughs> all my kids have got season tickets and I've dragged them from a young age to go and watch them. So I've always been a huge fan. Um, I used to play a lot as a kid. not Never seriously, you know, just playing with friends. Mm. And then I, I played Sunday League football. I did have a chance at one point to play Saturday League football, but at the time I wasn't enjoying it. And I didn't, I'd rather go and watch live football. I'd, I'd rather watch low league football than actually play Saturday League football myself. So everything from then, right into now, right into my research, um, always football related. When I studied for my Masters, I did a dissertation about why men self-harm. Because um, I, I used to work with... Um, high secure offenders so I've worked with a lot of men who've self-armed and a lot of men who've struggled with mental health um, but I thought to go and do that as a PhD because it's part-time PhD over about five years I knew it'd be difficult and probably anybody who ever does a doctorate will find it hard 
So I thought, if I'm doing it about self-harm, I'm going to put myself at risk, you know, when it gets really difficult. Mm. But I thought, if I do it about football, when it does get difficult, and then all of a sudden I get a text message or, or a tweet from a particular footballer, it's exciting, it's interesting. And having a chance to go and talk to these players who I've seen play or seen on the telly or something, it's it's still that, that schoolboy in me what really enjoys it. Um, so what can football do or what does it need to do to catch up to cricket and rugby in terms of uh, mental health support? Um, good question. Probably a lot more. Um, so I'll, I'll give you an example of a goalkeeper I had an interview with. He talked about um, struggling with his mental health and struggling with anxiety. And he, he struggled with anxiety for, for years. And I remember him talking about being in a warm-up for a particular big game and his anxiety was getting the better of him. But he didn't feel supported enough to go to the manager and say, I can't play today, I need a bit of time out, my head's not in the game. Um, because obviously fears for his place or fears for the contract. So he faked a physical injury. And he went to his manager and said, I've just been warming up and I've, I've hurt my hand. I'm not fit to play. So he got out of the game that way. Um, but my view is that mental health should be treated exactly the same as physical health. So if a player goes to a manager or goes to whoever and said, I'm struggling with my anxiety or I've got mental health issues or my head's just not right today at this moment, can I sit this one out? They should be supported to do that. It should be exactly the same. If you go to whoever you work for or work with and say, I need a mental health day, we should be supported to have that. It, it might All it needs is maybe a day away from work just to relax, unwind a bit, and then you're ready to go again the day after. Yeah, that's very true because the perception seems to be that they're scared to come forward because they may maybe not get the chances that um, moving forward that might be seen as weakness or like a prefer of different reasons. But it's funny when somebody yeah. puts a bid in for a player, they'll get taken out the squad because the head isn't quite in the game. But if someone's actually yeah. properly struggling with an issue, it could be it could be depression, something going on in the personal life. They're scared to come forward, and it's weird how we we sort of put that the whole transfer bid to one side and go, yeah, he can't possibly play today with that on his mind, but don't put any consideration into actual like re everyday issues. My key issue with this research is the group of men who experience either mental health issues themselves or within the family who just happen to be footballers. Um, and they are exposed to the same life events as you would be, as I would be. Um, it might be that some players have issues in their personal life we might have, and we've all done it. We've all gone to work after having an argument with a partner or a family member. They're no different. So in the build-up to, I don't know, Saturday morning was a big game. But, all right, you think the, game, the day of the game between Tramier and Chester, and you've got one of your players who's ready for the game but left for work that morning because he's had an argument with his girlfriend or his wife or someone in his family, and his head's not right because he's really upset. He might have slept rubbish as well because the night before he was thinking about the big game. And then he turns up and maybe takes it out on someone in the playing squad or maybe he snaps at his manager and then he's put on a bench or something and then he's needed to join the game and he comes on the game and he's not performing as you would expect or the levels he would normally perform at because he's all, got all these things going on in his mind. But certainly as fans, we don't see that. We don't recognise that, do we? We just think, oh, no. God, he's rubbish. Yeah. Get him off, get somebody else on. So yeah. I think it's not just for clubs. I think yeah. society as a whole needs to view mental health in football slightly different. Yeah, you, yeah. you think so. If you look at the Premier League players, then you'll. I've heard all these conversations a lot that because of the amount of money they get paid, um, they think that football should be like robots and not have any issues. And it's it's just ridiculous. 
And obviously, when it gets down to League One, League Two level, the money's not there, really, is it? We're all working hard to try and support families, to try and keep employment. If the contract runs out in the summer, we don't know where we're going next. So we've got all these things on the mind all the time. But from a manager's point of view, we just need performances. We just need the three points. And that, in some cases, not all, but in some cases, that that's how clubs tend to view things. You think that we will start to see more positions of like head of well-being at football clubs? Because obviously you have people in charge of nutrition, sports science, fitness, obviously the, the technical side as well. But do you think we're going to start to see people in that role? Or, is, or do you know of clubs who have a, like a head of well-being already? Now, I think that's it. Again, that's a great question. That's probably what we should have. Um, but I know some clubs have psychologists on board. Yet my, I've got a bit of an issue with psychologists because sports, from my experience, sports psychologists will be very good. But again, the focus quite often is about the performance and about marginal gains and trying to improve them as an athlete. Um, if you take out the football side of it and treat them just as a, as a person and the issues, what they might have, I think more clubs need to have either whether it's an independent counsellor or, like you say, a head of well-being, um, somebody in that role to be able to support the players more holistically with all the issues what they may be experiencing. And I, I spoke to one club last year and they have a check-in every day with their players and they've got a little rating scale of, I think, one to five. And each this was for an academy team. And each player each day would say where you are on, on this little chart. And then the guy I was talking to did say that a couple of players said they were like two out of five which would normally mean that they need following up to check that they're okay. But we didn't really have a training or the skills to do that properly. Um, so I think there needs to be lots more education. Um, and what you're saying about the head of wellbeing, I don't know how much you know, but the, the, the PFA, wellbeing department, from what quite a few players have told me, there's, there's one guy looking after the wellbeing for however many members the PFA have. And then... I mentioned earlier about the phone line. So if you were a player and then you built up the courage to, to phone somebody and they set you up with a counsellor in your area, it's all down to relationships. So you might go and see a counsellor, whether the club have put you in touch with them or the PFA have. But if you don't have that relationship or rapport with that counsellor and that relationship breaks down, then some of them are still left on the scrappy because then they won't have either the courage to go back or it might be, I don't know, but the PFA might turn and say, well, we'd set you up with someone you also need to meet us halfway. Hmm. So I think the head of wellbeing would be a great idea, um, but you've got to get all the clubs on board with it, and I think we're some distance off that, really. I wonder if clubs took it into their own hands, because you often find when when clubs maybe explore different varieties of training that isn't the norm, they just outsource them. Um, or like you say, they may rely on the PFA to put them in touch with somebody. But I suppose if you gave that to somebody as a salaried role, they'd understand the dynamic of the workplace a bit better. They'd probably gain the trust of the players just being around the place constantly. And you never know, it might even get that extra few percentage out of the performance. Um, so you would think rather than maybe relying on other people that, or even having it as a collective across the football league, that clubs may just take it upon themselves to to maybe just appoint that position. Well, sometimes it, it takes someone in that high-profile role. So um, if you look at, for example, the Gary Speed scenario, then that really shook the football world. So from certainly from me outside of football, you look at someone like Gary Speed, and he had a fantastic player, great career, manager of Wales, probably, well, I don't know, but probably like plenty of money, 
happy family, big house. He had probably everything what some people would try and aspire to, yet then took his own life. So, and we probably will never know the real reasons behind that. Um, and I think that really opened up the eyes of the football world that this can happen to, to lots of players. Um, and uh, something what struck me, was it a couple of years ago where Raheem Sterling was talking about being tired? I don't know if you remember that. He got a lot of criticism um, at the time. Yeah. And people saying, why can football be yeah. tired because they get paid millions of pounds? But if you think yeah. as, a, as a young athlete yeah. and you're playing two or three matches a week at a high level, obviously Champions League level, Premier League level, international level, and the media scrutiny of what people like Raheem are under all the time, whether it's positive or negative, it's got to be draining for anybody, never mind a young man still finding his way in the world, really. Um, and I, so I thought at the time, if he came out and said that he's tired, it might not be physically tired, it might be the fact that he's mentally tired because the amount of pressure he's under continuously. Um, and again, it's lots of our fan bases, we, there's still lots of stigma, discrimination about mental health not just obviously with footballers, but within the wider society. Um, so I think it's great what you're doing because we all do need to open up a little bit more. Yeah, and that's that's one thing that's come up a few times. Um, we discussed the, the Danny Rose article, do you remember that, where he sort of came out during yeah. an England press conference and said he was struggling and everybody sort of took a step back because you don't expect it, one, from somebody still in the game and two from somebody at, the, at such a high level. And I think the Sterling one as well has actually been because Gareth Southgate to give them um, sort of a bit more freedom to to not just give cliche answers and actually say, well, let's build a rapport, let's, let's appear to be humans, tell them, the fans and, and the press, how you're feeling. And I think that's been a very positive step by the England camp to see um, players come yeah, out definitely. and just be, just be honest. I think it needs to happen. Yeah, it was just a case of thinking about... Um top-level players being role models and how football has that power to com um, connect across communities um, from whatever background people are, obviously, all across the world. So if you've got people like Danny Rose or whoever it is at the top level talking publicly about the fact that they do struggle, whether it's with depression, anxiety, pressure, um, any kind of mental health struggle they may have, then the views they get across, whether it's social media or national media, it's just ridiculous. So if by these players opening up, encourages men and women and children all across the world to actually say, actually, that's me, I'm going through the same issue. And if it's OK for Danny Rose to go public, then I can go and seek some support. I think it's absolutely fantastic. And I think the work that Gal Southgate in particular is doing um, to change the whole image of the England team is, is massively overdue and, and long may it continue, really. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And one thing I wanted to ask you then, Gary, is where do you think, and this isn't an easy question to answer, but where do you think the responsibility lies between it being your own responsibility to look after yourself and a club's responsibility, technically as an employer, to, to manage and help you with your mental health, especially within sport? OK. Um, yeah, that is a, a tough one. Um, I think from a, an employee's point of view, you can do all the right things. You can put all the support available on. You can encourage your, your employees to get involved. But if that person isn't ready to access that support or to open up, then I think um, there needs to be a commitment from both parties to really engage with it. Um, so, for example, a lot of clinical work I've done in the past through my nursing career, I've, I've had the training um, I've read the literature, I know what needs to be done, what needs to be said, and I've sat in a room with some people who have experienced trauma and really distressed people, 
but building up that, that relationship can take a long, long period of time. And and I don't know about yourself, but if I go, for example, if you go to your GP and you've got some kind of physical or mental health issue, and if your GP is really supportive, you're more likely to open up and tell them a bit more. But in my case, if I go to a GP and I feel that we're not listening, I shut down. I'm not telling them anything else. Yeah. I think that might be the same for a player. So for a footballer or anybody, really, anybody listening to to go to seek some support from somebody else, if that person will go to, it doesn't appear to be listening or supportive, we're just going to close down and put another barrier there. So I think it needs to be an engagement from, from both sides. Because um, like I say, I, I've seen it from my side where I've, I can put the support in place, but if a person doesn't want to take that support at time, then you can only do so much. But then you've also got to be ready. So when that player, when that person does come to you and and is in a, um, say, a state of crisis and is seeking help, then you've got to be ready and you've got to be prepared to help them. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I can see that. And I, without wanting to get too political, do you think there's an issue with speed of response as well? So if somebody is struggling, that there isn't immediate access to help? I think you're 100% right. Obviously, we've got big issues nationally with waiting lists and, and access to, to different kinds of talking therapies. But from a football context, um, for me, it's all about early warning signs and early intervention. So I, I actually had a telephone conversation this afternoon with a, um, a football league manager for about half an hour who was really on board with mental health and supporting his players. And we had the conversation where he said that he wants to get to know the player first. So when he signs someone, they've got to buy into the values of the club and have the right values and be the right kind of person. And I talked to him about the fact that he would spend pretty much all week with that player. And it's the same in any, any working life you have, really. You spend a lot of time with someone, you can start to see any little changes, um, whether it's non-verbally or whether someone starts saying, oh, I'm feeling a bit off it today. And, and he says he has regular little five-minute, ten-minute informal chats with his players he talks about some issues where some of them are struggling and the work that he's doing to try and support them. But the key thing is, is just if you see someone, it might be yourself and whoever you work with and whether your friends or your family members, say tomorrow you can see a slight different change. Something's not right. And I believe that you get that gut feeling when you know something's not right. It's just to ask them. I know we all say, are you OK? But I don't think you might have seen the, the social media campaign back end of last year about asking twice. Because most of us, yeah. if, if people are yeah. okay, we all say, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. But then if you say, are you sure you're really okay, then that might make the difference to pretty much say, no, you know what, I am struggling a little bit and I've got this on my mind. And then straight away, you're in a conversation to try and talk about it. And do you think the danger with football is how masculine and how much banter, I suppose, goes on in the dressing room, that it's not really an environment where you'd want to speak up or show weakness? Yeah, definitely. So, again, the players I've spoken to, we'd, we have talked about the culture in the dressing room. And obviously, if the team's doing well and winning, it's really positive and a really good place to be. And then likewise, if the team's struggling or maybe in a relegation zone or getting relegated, then it's a really negative place to be. Um, and it's, it's that borderline because a lot of players talk about banter. But is it actual banter or is it a bit of low-level bullying going on? So it's, it's quite a fine line people tread. And... And in football, a lot of sports particularly, but certainly football, there's this macho terminology. So even in team talks, it's about being strong and winning your battles and, and getting stuck in and fighting. It's all this masculine terminology. And a lot of players want to be accepted and want to conform so, and to be part of that team. So there is all this 
um, masculinity within that those changing rooms. Um, and again, if my research really fits for me with working, I said before, work with high secure offenders. So when they're all out together on the ward or mixing, or you imagine prisoners being out in a, a prison population, they've all got to be hard, they've all got to um, present a particular way. But when you get them on a one-to-one -one basis, and then we'll show the vulnerable side. And it's for me, it's exactly the same as in the changing room. We'll all, you'll have someone who would maybe senior players, younger players look up to the senior players and want to be exactly the same. They want to, um, dress the same, we'll probably have the same tattoos and the same haircuts and the same headphones and the same trainers and all this kind of stuff. So it does yeah. take a strong player to to step out from that and um, and be strong enough because if you're different to the others, you'll be potentially be the subject to this low-level bullying. Um, but if you're resilient enough and say, you know what, I'm I'm not happy with this. But then I've also talked to players who we've talked about the change rooms and then we said if they do go to a player for support, the support is there and change rooms can be supportive. So I bet for every example between us we can come up with where a player has had a really positive experience in the change room, you'll find someone on the flip side with really negative experience. You're always going to have three or four full-backs, you're always going to have a couple of wingers, a couple of strikers, and you all want to win, you all want to play, you all want to do your best. But equally, if you're in training, he plays in your position. If you want to come out better or be in a position where you're going to be the one on the team sheet and it's small gains, and I'm not suggesting for any one minute that somebody would do anything to to harm you personally just to get a place in the team, but they are competitors at the end of the day and they all do wanna they all do wanna play. So I suppose that does come into the thinking. Yeah, someone someone will have that selfish mindset. So you imagine being, I don't know, say you were centre forward, sat on the bench and your main striker goes down with a serious injury. You'll train with that person, be obviously the teammate, and, and want to support them because, let's say, they've torn a crucial ligament or something. But at the same time, inside, you might be thinking, oh, good, I get a go now. Um, I can make that place my own and I can get all the adulation and, and score all the goals and be the hero. Um, and then maybe when the player comes back from injury, you lose your place again. So football is a cutthroat industry, really. Yeah, it's a bit defined by yeah, them small moments, isn't it? I suppose as well. Yeah. Like we often hear when we're speaking to players, I got signed by this club, by this manager with the best intentions. That manager was gone 10 games into the season. The new manager didn't fancy me. I've moved all my family. Yeah. I've rejected offers here and there to join this club. And now I find myself out of favour, really upset, not enjoying it, don't know anyone in the town. And it's, 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 it is, they're, they're just humans at, at the end of the day. And what... Just following on from that, then, Gary, um, you mentioned uh, about some of the research you've done, and we saw that one of your topics was to do with speaking with wives, mums, girlfriends, and, and the women of professional footballers. Um, why did you choose that topic, and, and what and what type of things have you found that may be of interest to our listeners? Okay. Um, well, I've part of my research, I'm using a framework, what's called the Silences Framework, and it's been developed by Professor Laura Seventh, who's my... Um, director of studies so when you do a PhD you have a main supervisor um, and she's mine and for her PhD she developed this framework and it's about the fact that um, some people suffer in silence and voices are rarely heard um, and I'm the first person to use her framework in a sporting context never mind a football context yeah. so part of this framework is so like I said I've, I've interviewed 18 players and I go through recycling the framework so I develop a summary of of my five key themes, what I've come out with, I then send them back to the players for them to to check that and see if they want to add any comments and see if they're happy with it. 
But then because my main theme has been about social networks, so what I mean by that is players growing up who have a more stable support structure and more resilient and able to cope with the challenges that football brings compared to maybe a player who has, who has not got that support, who might um, struggle a bit more, maybe they've come from a, I don't know, let's say a difficult background or they've moved away from home or um, we don't really know anybody in the area. Um, so part of this, um, this framework was looking at what we call collective voices. So I developed from my five themes, my players, um, other players involved make comments about it and then send it on as this collective voices stage. And what that means is that any person, what these players have talked about, so for example, in my research, we've talked, you mentioned wives, girlfriends, partners, lots of players have talked about having support from female members of a family. And that could be grandmother, it could be an aunt, it could be a sister, not necessarily wife, girlfriend or, or mother. We've rarely talked about male figures, it's usually female figures. Um, players have also talked about physios. So if injury is one of the biggest causes of, of men's health issues in football, so as you come rehabilitating from your injury, spend your time with the physio away from the rest of the team. So quite often it's the physio who gives that frontline support. And then obviously we've talked about managers, we've talked about counsellors. Um, so the idea is to send the summary off to people around the players to see if they recognise that from their own experiences. So going back to what you've asked about wives and girlfriends, I'm looking at maybe three or four wives, girlfriends, partners, grandmas, aunts, whoever, of professional footballers to see if they recognise these themes, see if they agree with them or to see if they or give them the opportunity to make any comments or or see if it's different from their experience. Because then that just validates the whole study. So the players tell you one thing and then if that's backed up by people around them within the game, then that makes the study a lot more reliable. And are they very receptive and, and, and open to, to chatting? Um Again, it's not a case of actually interviewing them. It's a case of them having a look at my themes and answering five questions about those and sending them back to me. Um, okay. I did put a call out on again on, on Twitter um, to football contacts to see if there's anybody who's interested. Um, and one player has come back to me currently and to say that um, his wife is interested and he also mentioned um, his mum might be interested as well. Um, and again, he, he wasn't one of the 18 interviews. This is an extra guy. And he briefly talks about the fact that he's always grown up with women as being the main figures in his family. And he's surrounded, got plenty of sisters and obviously his wife and his mum. So it, it's, I'm just trying to find those kind of uh, contacts, really, people who are willing to um, get involved. Going back to something we mentioned earlier. Um, so if you've got a player who's struggling with mental health issues, if they went through the PFA or the club found, about, found out about it, then that, that might be a detriment to the player. So... The player might think we'll lose a place in the team, and we talked briefly about contracts. Whereas a few guys I've spoken to have struggled, but have not been comfortable going within the club to get support. It's them being a female family member who has come along and, and said, "You need to phone this number, whether it's with Charity Mind or whether it's Calm or whether it's somebody else or counsellor." Um, and I can think of one player clearly who he said that his mum was a like clearly the central part of that family. And she took him and, and took him to a counsellor and said, you will get help. And it was it was that kick up the backside, if you like, what they needed. But because it came from someone really important to them in the family, then they started to pay attention and, and seek the right kind of help. Okay. Of the, the 18 players that you spoke to, what sort of levels of the game were they from? Okay, so 
it's all within the the football league. So at the time I interviewed them, there were current players with either championship clubs, League One or League Two clubs. That between them have played across all levels, including the Premier League. Um, one or two have played internationally. One of them played um, in the European Championships at some point for his country. Um, I did obviously want to get Premier League players involved, but they are so protected. Um, like say, for example, I've I've been using Twitter and LinkedIn as um, uh, recruitment tools. You try and send a, a, a tweet to someone like Raheem Sterling or Harry Kane or someone like that, it's not getting seen because obviously they'll get thousands and thousands of messages all the time. Um, I did also at one point look at Premier League players who have talked about issues. So we mentioned Danny Rose and there's a few similar players. And I actually put a package together, printed it off, and I sent it to them at their clubs. And I never heard anything back. So whether it's they received that, decided they didn't want to get involved, which is fine, or whether it landed at the club and it never made it to a play, I'll I'll never know. Um, because we're just so it's so frustrating, so protected from I want to say normal life, but I'm not sure that's the right term to use. But they're very, very difficult to access, particularly if someone like me was not in the game. It's interesting you say that, really, Gary. We spoke to somebody the other day. I cannot remember who it was who we interviewed, but we had a very similar conversation about how far removed footballers at the very top level are from um, from everyday life. I, I say there probably is a better way of putting it. But one of the things that yeah. we talked about was that they're, they're curated and they're, they're portrayed by their clubs almost as not in a human way. And, and I, I wonder if that works to their detriment in the long term, because how can you expect people to treat them as a human if you don't portray them as a human? Um, and I, I think some of them struggle, again, right at the top level. The pressure they're under um, obviously will be intensified because everywhere they go, um, you, you'll see images of people like Wayne Rooney in the past and it'll go out publicly, but it's in disguise. You think, why should you have to have a disguise on just to go about and live your normal life? Um, but again, that's easy for me to say because I'm, I'm not living in that kind of lifestyle. Mm. But it's, it's, it must be hard to, to be in, but people to know how much you earn. So, for example, if you are earning between 250 to 500,000 pounds a week, and then your life is all over the papers all the time, all over the internet, all over social media, and everything you do with a camera in your face. Um, particularly as a, a young man, a glaxo a young man growing up, it, it must be a challenge. Um, and then you turn up on the pitch on a Tuesday night or Saturday, and if you're having an off day for whatever reason, then again, that just get, gets really magnified. Of the, the players that you spoke to, Gary, was, was there a, a, a differential in, in ages and in demographics in terms of backgrounds and stuff? Or was it as was it just, you know, whoever you could get hold of? or? Um well, question part of it was whoever I could get hold of. Um, there's quite an age range. I think the youngest player I spoke to was about 18, and then the oldest was around about 40, who's had a really long career across the football league. Um, the 18 year old, as you would imagine, didn't have much life experience um, and struggled a bit in terms of his communication skills. So the interview lasted about a quarter of an hour. I was a little bit disappointed, really. And then someone who's a little bit older, mid-30s, or this guy who's 40, got lots of ex life experience, lots of experience within football. So the interview just goes on for a bit longer because he's got a longer story to tell. Um, so there's quite an age, age range. Um, I'm trying to think in terms of, I think I've interviewed more players who were in League One and League Two at the time, probably League One more than any. Um, but like I say, they've played across all levels. 
Um, I interviewed a chap, um, a French guy who was playing in the championship. Um, and he was really interesting because he said that, again, talks about that social network, how strong and supportive his family is. So when I asked him questions about mental health, he kept saying, I've got no mental health issues. I will just get up, get on with it. I've got plenty of support in place. So he was really on it. And then some of the guys who did struggle, they talked about um, the lack of support growing up. Um, again, it came back to this uh, female figure, but we didn't have a male role model in the life and, and we tend to struggle through school and then struggle to understand their emotions. When you put that in a football context, again, it just magnifies it. And I suppose with the, obviously, eight, 18 to 40 is, is is quite a big difference in age and particularly in, fo- in, in football. Did you find any difference yeah. in terms of the experiences of, say, people who were sort of earlier on in their career and come from a different generation from those that were kind of later on in their career? Um, yeah, I think the ones later on in the career are, are more mature. They've got, like I said, they've got more life events. So a couple in mind have not only gone through different challenges within football, but also... Um, maybe a relationship breakdown, maybe been married a second time. Um, one guy in particular talked about issues he had with a manager and then he left and signed for another club and then the other club changed the manager and brought this guy in who he'd had an issue with before um, because I'm sure you all know we've got this managerial merry-go-round where the same managers, particularly at lower levels, get sacked and then we just move around with different clubs. So players are frequently exposed to these kind of characters who may have been an issue in the past. Sometimes there's just no escape from it, really. Um, I think the ones who've got a better story to tell have had a few more clubs. I've interviewed one guy who pretty much spent his career at one club and had been quite fortunate and the support had been there. But then if I interviewed someone who's been at a number of clubs, he could talk positively about one or two and where there has been support, where he felt he could go and talk to the staff there. And then he'd go somewhere else where it'd just be absolutely horrific and the weren't prioritising the players, um, whether that's because we focus on the financial issues off the pitch or whether it's because of the characters in the, in the boardroom or the managers. Um, so, like I say, ones we've got with more life experience in a few different clubs, they've, they've had a more uh, colourful career, should we say. And from, from your, your conversations with people and obviously with your background in, in, in nursing and, in, and as an academic, do you think that there are mental health issues are more prevalent in football than they are perhaps in other areas of society? Well, we, you might see the, the the number one in four banded about. So it's a, a suggestion that one in four of the population will experience a mental health issue at some point in their life. And in some cases, that's one in three. And I, personally, I prefer the, the one in three scenario. Um, and again, you go into a football world, and I, I don't know if it's a case of football creates mental health issues or it's men going already having or already being predisposed to these mental health issues who then go into football and then that just makes it worse. So I mentioned before about a, a goalkeeper with anxiety issues. He talks about having anxiety growing up before he even got into first team football. So it might be that if he never played football, he might have struggled with anxiety anyway, but you put him in that kind of cutthroat industry and potentially it could just make it worse. Um, other players did talk about, you know, when we cross the white line onto the pitch, it's a form of escapism. So we might have lots of things going on in personal life, yet when we go to work and we go play football, it takes our mind off it completely until after the game and it all comes back again. Um, so it's a bit of a, again, mental health is not black and white. It's really complex. And I think that's the same with these 18 guys I've spoken to. Each one has had a different story, um, either positive or negative. 
But like I said, I've got five teams, so there's been similarities between them all, but we've all got their own individual take on it. You were talking before about um, about the the difficulty with obviously getting appointments and being seen, and, and and I suppose that links back to how kind of undervalued and under-recognised mental health is in terms of up against sort of possibly maybe other chronic diseases that you would you would you would kind of put it in terms of its impact on people's lives. You know, you like the diabetes and, and heart failure and and that sort of thing. And I think one of the things yeah. that I, that, that I kind of resonated with was you was I think what 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 we wanted to touch on a lot with these podcasts was that there are obviously way a lot of a lot of room for improvement for football both as an industry and for individuals in terms of the way that it approaches and assesses mental health but I think football in a lot of ways it kind of reflects society and I think as society in general in so many ways despite the fact that the situation is improving can do so much more in terms of the way that it, 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 it approaches mental health and the way that it understands it. Do you think from the conversations that you've been having that football is an industry that is open to understanding mental health better and, and trying to make the situation better? Or is it the type of place where they're burying their head in the sand with it almost? Um, I think it's a bit of both. I think we've got a generation now of, of younger coaches and managers coming up who like getting quite new into management who are more open to the conversations about mental health and well-being um, because they've gone through that transition from being a player um, and finishing your career because that transition at the end, that has a massive impact on players. So I mentioned at the start, I think about identity. So you think as a player, if you play football from the age of five and you've always been introduced by family as this is, this is Dan, he's, he's a footballer, and then you go on and have a long career, when you get to in your 30s, it could be one bad tackle and your career is over. And people can plan for life after football, but I think not enough players are doing that because we think, well, I've got another year, yeah, I've got another contract. And, um, or certainly players in the 20s think, I've got another five or 10 years of this. And then it can be over all of a sudden, I have a bad tackle or a new manager and your face doesn't fit and you're out and your contract's over. Um, so I think that um, players just need to be a bit more, I can't, Sorry, Dan, I can't remember what your question was. I've gone off on one. Sorry. Um, no, 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 it's absolutely fine. Um, what I was, was was asking about was whether you think that football is, like, as an industry, is trying to get better at understanding mental health or whether it, you know, yeah, it, it's, it's resting on its laurels almost. Yeah, um, like, that was it. Sorry. I, yeah, I think there's lots of managers out there who want to improve things. Um, I think some real good examples. So little bits I've seen, particularly the likes of Brendan Rodgers at Leicester, um, he seems to be really supporting his players and really open, being like a father figure to them and trying to support their well-being. Um, but then, again, you look at the PFA, so I've got mixed messages from the players I've spoken to about the PFA. Some have had positive experiences of it, but the amount of money the PFA have, yet their well-being department is still small. Um, so it could be that they can increase the team, they can put more councils in place, they could, um, whoever it was mentioned about head of well-being, they can put some policies in place where each club has to have a head of well-being and has to prioritise the emotional well-being of players, they've probably got that power, yet currently, for whatever reason, choose not to do so. And I don't really know what the answer is to that one. Um, it might be the burying the head in the sand and thinking, well, it's only a handful of players who talk about it. Going back to what, what you mentioned about Courtois, that's a brilliant example. There was an opportunity for Real Madrid 
to say, yes, our, our main goalkeeper, from time to time, for whatever reason, struggles with anxiety. And you think the amount of Real Madrid followers, all fans all around the world, that would have been brilliant. But to then turn around and publicly say that he suffered from gastroenteritis, that's them saying that it's not okay to talk about mental health issues. So we missed a huge trick there. Yeah, funny you should mention that about the, about the PFA specifically. So I'm on the PFA's website at the moment. They've got one, two, three, four people working their wellbeing department. Okay. And you think how many, you know, hundreds of people and thousands of people that they 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 they, they will probably support. Um, yeah. There's a guy who works in the in the wellbeing department at, at the PFA called Michael Bennett. Um, yeah. Who's a who's who's quite an interesting fella. Um, do you think who whose responsibility do you think it is to drive this forward then and and try and improve the situation and to be support? Do you think it's is it the PFAs? Is it the FAs? Is it the clubs? You know, is it FIFA? Is it UEFA? Who who do you think ultimately should shoulder that that responsibility? Wow, great question. Um, whew, I would probably say the FA. I know we've got the Heads Together campaign where we've got Prince William involved in, and and I think the work, for example, Heads Together appear to be doing seems to be focused, again, everyone and everyone out in the community, which is great, and everybody who's interested in football. But there still seem to be missing the target group of current players. And the, the PFA is a union, and people have their own view whether to join a union or not join a union. Um, so you can argue that the PFA should increase the wellbeing department, but will that really engage your players to get involved? Uh, I'm not sure. But you think, ideally, if it came from the very top, so if it came from FIFA and from UEFA, that would be absolutely brilliant. But I think the issue with that is mental health is viewed so differently across the world, um, certainly in different continents, and their whole idea of mental health is very, very different to the Western world. So for FIFA to get a, a really good um, understanding of it will have a broad impact. I think they're probably a long way from that. Um, so certainly for in this country, and obviously I've been looking at uh, players in the Football League and ideally the Premier League, so then, yeah, you think the FA and the PFA should be really leading on this. But that that doesn't take away from the clubs, but nothing stopping any club in particular, whether it be Doncaster or Tranmere or, or whoever, saying, right, we're going to prioritise this, we're going to bring in a head of wellbeing or we're going to bring in an independent counsellor and we're going to support our players. Because I guarantee if you support the emotional well-being of your players, your performances will improve and your points on the board will improve without doubt. Yeah, absolutely. It, 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 it's interesting you mentioned about counsellors, really, because um, I go and see a, a counsellor myself every other week um, and, and spoken on the podcast before about um, counsellor that he's gone to see. And I've personally found it really helpful. And as much as anything else, just to have a bit of a safe space where you can kind of open up and talk about things. And even if I just spend 45 minutes rabbiting on, I do feel better at the end of it. Are, are there any clubs that you can yeah. that, that employ a counsellor or even outsource a counsellor or have any specific counselling outside of a sports psychologist? Well, if you you might have heard of Sporting Chance. So again, if a player goes to the PFA, um, you mentioned Michael Bennett, and I've, I've been to one of his talks before. And the PFA talk about each year there's an increase of players accessing their services, which which I believe, which I think is great. Um, and then some of those will access the Sporting Chance Clinic or the Sporting Chance Counsellors. Um, and I'm aware that some clubs, not enough, but some clubs will have a psychologist or a counsellor or maybe even a chaplain on board for them to talk to. 
Um, and I think it's it's down to how the clubs run. Some clubs really honestly prioritise it, but take it seriously. Where I think some, whether it's managers or chairmen, we're just we're not there yet. Um, so I, I still, to, even if some clubs are doing it, there's still more work to be done. Because again, the players I've spoken to, we've all said, um, we've all said that. I've asked that question: What needs to be done? Could we do more? And they all say yes. There's definitely more work to be done. Yeah, and I think ultimately, if if, if the service isn't for the and everything is for the players and for the people in the game, if they're saying that they feel like more can be done. Then I think ultimately that's the answer, isn't it? Really, that if it's for them and they want yeah. like more to be done, then then that's it. I I um in, in setting some of these interviews up, I I know somebody who works quite quite high up at Tranmere, and <clears throat> she was telling me about um something that the that, that Tranmere have in place where it's I don't know if it's an app or or something similar where the the players in the morning have to log how they're feeling via the app, which goes through to the physio. And it basically gives them the opportunity to say, I didn't sleep well last night or I was having this worry last night without having to do it face-to-face if they didn't want to do that or in front of other people if they didn't want to do that, which just registers that with the club and with the, the management team that they know that that person's maybe dealing with something else that, that then they can be treated, you know, slightly differently or taken aside to have a yeah. conversation with them, which, you know, as I say, for, for I think Tramia do personally do a lot of work um, in terms of, psychology and well-being and and that sort of thing and and we've found from some of the interviews that we've done with people who work at the club and just from contacts that we know from, from being supporters that it's a particular interest of mark palios the owner and and, and of mickey mellon the manager of of making sure that people are, are comfortable and, and, and happy at work and that thing and i think probably a lot of that comes from mark palios's time working at the fa and and, and maybe how we've seen that it's yeah it's, done well enough elsewhere and um, one of the other things i wanted to, to ask about just just finally gary you were talking there um with ryan about the female support for for, for footballers do you think there's a reason why they feel more comfortable asking female for some females for support rather than males um i think it, again it might be down to that whole idea of men don't talk and men don't seek support um and i've i've seen on your um on your link on Twitter about suicide is the biggest killer of men under 45, which is exactly right. Um, if I wasn't a nurse, I'd be honest, I would struggle to open up about any issues what I may have. It's only because of the fact that I'm a nurse, I've been um, exposed to lots of different situations and I'll go to a GP and if I've got some um, personal concern, whatever it might be, I'll either tell them or show them I've got no issue with that. Um, but I think there's a generation of men out there like particularly the older generation who don't talk, who do bottle things up. Um, I can give you a quick example about my dad the other year. I went round to see him and he'd, he'd burnt his arm and his dad's 65. He'd burnt his arm cooking some food and he'd had an accident and I had to laugh at the time, but he had an accident. He was basically frying an egg and he had some tomatoes in the pan and he knocked the pan of tomatoes and the hot tomatoes went onto his bare arm and then it hurt him so he jumped and with that he knocked the frying pan so the fat from the frying pan went on his arm and he badly burnt his arm so when I asked him what he did about it, he said, I just went outside and put his arm in the fresh air. He didn't access any medical help whatsoever. So his arm is a little bit of a mess now. And he, But that's his mindset. He just gets on with it, um, even to his own detriment. And I think there's, there's lots of men out there. Um, I think some men will find it more um, easier to talk to, particularly partners, female partners, wives, girlfriends, friends, whoever it might be, um, because they always seem to be a bit more supportive. Um, 
So, and again, the example of a group of friends I grew up with, the supportive in one way, but it's that banter kind of support. So if I went to them and, and said, that, you know what, I'm, I'm really struggling, let's say, for example, my wife's left me, I'm, I'm feeling, I'm, I'm struggling with my depression, I'm really anxious, and they'd probably just laugh at me. Um, so then I wouldn't feel comfortable telling them about my issues, where I feel if I went to, say, my wife and opened up about the issues I might have, I'd get far more support. And that might be the same with the players. We all mentioned before about the banter and the, and the issues and the masculinities in the changing rooms. Um, I think a lot of men find it more comfortable, if they do talk, find it more comfortable talking to a female figure. Do you think then possibly what might help would be maybe, we've obviously seen in recent years more females working within the game, but in, in a way a lot of those roles are kind of media roles and television roles and that sort of thing, as opposed to being directly involved in football. Um, it's often said, and, and, and I have to admit, I don't know if this is true or not, that, that women are, are, are more in touch with their emotions and are better at that sort of thing than, than men are generally. Um, do you think there would be some, there'd be an improvement if more there were more women working within the game directly? And do you think there's any resistance to that? Um, I don't think it should be a gender thing. I think it should be the right person. So you, obviously you mentioned talking to a counsellor and and if it's the right counsellor, that will go really well, whether they're male or female. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think in football, there needs to be the right people. And, and if that's more women, that's absolutely brilliant. But at the same time, that if you've got a man with the right skill set and the ability to listen and be empathetic, then I think that will make a huge difference whether you're male or female. Welcome back. You're listening to the Man Marking Podcast. I've still got Ryan Pulford and Anthony Olsen in the virtual studio with me today. Lads, I want to get your thoughts on, on Gary's interview there. And I know you wanted to touch on that kind of dressing room relationship, that almost crossover maybe between banter and bullying. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting, isn't it? Often you get these situations and in dressing rooms and even in your in your circle of friends as well, where you know a, a joke might be a joke sometimes, sometimes it's not. It, it can go a little bit further. I think when Gary was talking about it, he he spoke about it in a dressing room kind of sense and how it might be perceived as kind of low level bullying or slash banter. Um, I hate that word banter myself, but um, <laughs> the, there's a there was an interesting point he made where you know footballers often have to try and fit in. And um, when they stand out, it can be quite difficult for them. Um, and it kind of led me to to think about how the like traditional side of the game has has changed. So how players look and and act. So years and years ago, there would have been you know no white boots on the pitch because that wasn't the done thing. And then obviously that's changed. It's become more expressive, and we've seen it in hairstyles and and what they wear and 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 the way they act outside of the game. Um, so there's there's a nice split, I, I'd say, between the two things. You've got an era where it was uh, kind of manly men, or manly men, sorry, um, and then you've got this more expressive uh, side of the game, and it, it kind of reminded me, obviously, there's that, the famous one at the moment is Sooners versus Pogba, which I'm not sure who'd win in a fight. I think I'd, I'd, I'd still back Graham Sooners, but I'm not if Pogba moves around. Um <laughs> But there's that like traditional era, you know, 
let's get on with it. Let's do our jobs. Let's not be, you know, big champagne, champagne Charlies or, or anything like that. And then you've got these new players who are who are coming through in, in the likes of Pogba and, and, and you know, Rashford and Sterling and, and, you know, younger players, Jack Grealish as well, who are, who are expressive and, and, and want to play. You know, it's quite interesting how they're trying to fit. They're probably fitting in in those dressing rooms right now. Punditry wise, they're not fitting in, which is quite strange, and it, it seems to to gain a lot of criticism for them. Uh, do you reckon it? Do you reckon, Ant, just on that, I suppose, with Pogba and Souness, then do you reckon for the older generation of players, the likes of Souness, do you reckon there's any bitterness towards the lifestyle that footballers of Pogba's level are afforded now compared to what he his lifestyle would have been when he played. Do you reckon there's any kind of bitterness towards that? In so much as, you know, like he'd be thinking soon as my tit in and go, you know better than I was, but you're getting paid however much more because there's much more money in the game now. Yeah. Do you think there's any resentment in that sort of sense? I, I mean, I wouldn't like to speak on on his behalf. I don't think there'd, there'd be any resentment. You know, soon as you've seen pictures of him back in the day, he was well known for for going and enjoying himself and having a good time when he was playing football. Um, there's a great picture of him sitting on the beach, just absolutely loving life. Um, it's quite scary at first, but once you get used to it, it's it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, a bit like this podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but at, at, at the money thing, maybe that might be might be an angle. Um, but you know, I'm sure Strunes in particular is being paid. But what I more want to wanted to say was it's just that traditional element and a lot of we get it with fans as well and even when the you know the states of the game we've got it now at the moment we discussed the other day on the not for me clive podcast where you know things could change in terms of substitutions and and water breaks and you know we've had a big conversation in in january time about fa cup replays so that traditional side of the game wants to cling on and hold on and then you've got this new fresh element in, in the game which is enjoyable and fun and then there's these people who want to kind of bring it down and it's it's quite tough you know part of me i think for for people my age growing up in the 90s and then seeing all the great players come in in early 2000s i kind of torn between two minds i'd say i I know i am whether you want that traditional elements you know yeah you're hard hard nosed footballers you want someone to go out and express themselves and I think it's a difficult one, but it was just a really interesting, like, kind of point that he made where you've got these players in in changing rooms and they're fitting in there, but again, they're, they're having to go out and disguise themselves as well. I think he, he mentioned Wayne Mooney having to go out and disguise himself for fear of his lifestyle, which I think is is strange and particularly strange when I don't know if you remember it was a Liverpool goalkeeper who got um, there was a I think it was ITV they were interviewing uh, on the street. And he managed to run into one of the best Liverpool goalkeepers that had been around. I can't remember his name now. Um, <laughs> Peggy Arpex said. No, it definitely wasn't him because I wouldn't no. be able to say that. But it, it was a, I can't remember who it was. But anyway, and he basically just said, oh, yeah, I'm, a, I'm, I'm an ex-Liverpool goalkeeper. And it was like, hang on, well, you're just going about your life. You know, normally no one's making a big fuss of you. And that might be the way that was back then. But... I don't know. It just it is quite interesting how we've we enjoy the football side of it. We enjoy how good they are, but we don't enjoy anything else that comes with it. You know, the minute someone dyes their hair or has a as a as a different haircut, you know, people lose their mind. And we saw that with Beckham as well. You know, every 
every six months he changed his hair. It's it's very interesting. I think Beckham set the set the mould for that really. Um I suppose it's like footballers these days aren't just they're not just athletes, they're celebrities in their own right, almost outside yeah, of the fact they're athletes. Particularly at the top end as well. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd completely agree with that. You know, the the sought after and the the they're wanted by everyone and anyone as well. So that's yeah. just a, a, an interesting kind of um, element that I found in that change room environment. Yeah, it's like a clashing of cultures, isn't it? And we've we've kind of spoken about it a few times with a couple of different ex footballers and and current footballers and and how they've sort of had to adapt to changing rooms and how different they are now and you know I think we're at that sort of crossover point now where there's a bit of a newer way of thinking about how we approach those environments but there's still people that are running them who are from an older environment so people are having to get used to a different way of doing things and changing a culture and changing an environment is very difficult. Ryan, I just want to bring you in at this point, mate. What are your um, what were your, some of your takeaways then from from Gary's interview? Yeah, well, j- just to follow on very quickly from what you just said, I think as well if you look at a changing room, um, sort of in the eighties when Sunes was at Liverpool and they're at the peak of the powers, majority of that squad were either English, Irish, Scottish. Barring the odd exception, maybe Grabalar. I think they had Cohen, he was Israeli at one point. Um, so they've all probably come through similar backgrounds and had similar lifestyles and childhoods. Um, and you're probably not going to have such a diverse uh, culture and dressing room as you would today, where maybe you've got a couple of lads who've, who've had tough upbringings in Africa, you've got lads from South America, you've got obviously you still core with British players and then. Europeans and and so on. So you got to realise as well that the people in those dressing rooms, as well as times changing, it's the completely different people who've had completely different lives. They've got different beliefs, um, and and that's naturally going to create a different environment. If you look at someone like Sunas, I don't think he's not resentful. I generally just think he loves football, and he didn't think there was much wrong with it, and he's seen a whole three sixty degree change. And I, I, even I tweeted the other day, I mean, I'm only 28 and, I, and even I get annoyed with how much they seem to want to meddle and change football. So if you're someone like him, you're going to be thinking, there was nothing wrong with the game I was successful at. So why is it becoming so alien to me? Like, what, what, why do you need five subs? Why do you need all, all, all his VAR and those type of things? Um, so I can see why that's frustrating. I, what I don't like is when people perpetuate comments he makes. Because if he ever says anything about Pogba now, someone like, I don't know, a Bible or something, they're going to be tweeting it within minutes. And maybe sometimes his comments have been unfair. But every comment he makes now is under scrutiny to the point where they're almost saying, oh, he's bullying Pogba. And I'm not going to say whether he, he, he has or he hasn't. I'd have to go back and listen to everything he said about him. I can't remember off the cuff. But it's dangerous when you start putting words in people's mouths. And I think that's the sort of culture we create now where... If it's Roy Keane, it's Sunez, Neville, Carragher, they, people can't really wait to tell you what they meant by what they said when only they really know what they meant by what they said. Sort of in the same way when a comedian does a joke on stage and somebody says, this is what they meant, that's awful, and you can't wait. Well, maybe they just didn't express it in the best way. But um, in terms of Gary, what what became apparent, which has come up before, is he he referenced straight away that rugby and cricket seem to be doing things a little bit better. And I know we've touched on that before, about football almost being too big for itself. 
Um, and something that sort of popped into my mind off the back of what he was saying is he, he talked a lot about building relationships. And I do wonder now, with the fast-moving nature of football, is the downfall of how quickly it moves is that relationships don't have time to build, elements of trust, people you, you, you go and speak to. Because you may have 10, 12 different players playing with you 12 months after you joined the club. You may have a new management team. They bring all their own back office staff in. The owners might change. If you're going to come forward on mental health, if you're going to tell somebody you're at your most vulnerable, most people who make that step, it's either with a professional or it is with someone really close to them, family or friend. If you're in a workplace like footballers are and, and they're consumed by, a, by, by what they do, the profession, if then people are coming and going at an alarming rate, it's hard to see them as the people you'd come forward to. I know you both have been very honest on this podcast before and you've talked about when, when you've struggled and, and who you spoke to. Uh, Danny, you were very open with it, but I, but I think your friends and your family were, were people there who you, who you sought help from. And yeah, yeah. They weren't going to be people that had just walked into your life. They were people that you'd known for maybe a decade or more. And that's important. And I think that's something that maybe football struggles with, that it moves too fast for people to, to take stock and go, actually, yeah. I've played with him for five, six years. I'm going to confide in him. Or this person's been at the club doctor for numerous years. I'm going to because you often find when footballers talk, they talk about the people who seem to be the fabric of the community: kit man, groundsman, uh, club secretaries, people who drive the coaches. People seem to have these bonds with the people that it, people players come that. and go. Yeah, but then they stay. They're, they're part. They're ingrained in the community. And I think that's quite interesting. And Gary sort of highlighted that when he was talking about. He asked people, footballers, didn't he, if he could interview them. And I think he's interviewed 18 players to date, which is a great achievement. He's doing some great work. But you just wonder if, if they knew him better and trusted him more, how many more would that be? But it, yeah. to them, it's just a stranger. Go and tell me about your most vulnerable state. Yeah. Do you know what I think is interesting there, Ryan, which I'm kind of reminded of, that we spoke about Jordan Gary's interview, and we have asked a couple of different times, is the idea of a head of well-being, which you've, I, think, I think you first brought up. Um, I don't know if it was in Gary's interview the first time you brought it up, but you've sp certainly brought it up and we've spoken about it a number of times. Yeah. You, you you hear a lot of clubs talk about, you know, let's get a, you know, a director of football in or, a, you know, a head of recruitment or whatever it is, and that they stay and you bring coaches in and out to coach the team, but the director of football stays in the middle and is always there. So you've got like a philosophy. Well, you could imagine that you you could have the same facility with like a head of well-being, so it doesn't matter who the management are. So they're detached from the management. So the the playing side with the performance side has absolutely no relationship in a way with the well-being side. As in so much as when a player goes in to talk about their mental health with a head of well-being, that none of that needs to be disclosed to the performance, the playing side of it. Because I think when you talk about like sports psychologists, which which I think I think when we talk about mental health in football, often what it gets conflated with is psychology and 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 mentality. And I think what often happens is is that you go and see a sports psychologist because well he's not playing very well at the moment, or he's you know he's snatching at chances, send them to the psychologist, and we can work out how to get his performance better. Whereas with like a head of well-being with someone that's to do with their mental mental health would be more around how can we make sure you're happier in yourself disregard the, the, the performance side of it 
just in you so that you as a person are the best that you can be so you can imagine that you could have that facility that be separate but you'd have to make a conscious decision that that wasn't influenced by the performance side of it and that that was being able to be ran of its own volition and that would probably be very difficult to the football club particularly a smaller football club but i can certainly see how that could be a thing that that could be implemented especially at the top level for for sure i think you can well imagine on a training ground that there'd be a, a person that's there and they're the head of well-being and they're just in position and they don't like have to have briefings with the manager or briefings with the coaches because their roles are entirely separate and they may come together in some regards but not on like a ha- update on the players but it may it, it just is there as a facility for the players to feel safe and comfortable if they're in a state where they need to talk to somebody I think it would indirectly affect performances as well in a positive way, wouldn't it? But yeah. I should say you wouldn't have to really measure it. Um, it would just be like a safe haven for players to go, you know what, I'm going to knock on his door, he's going to let me in, and he's when I leave that door, that was between me, me, me and him, or me and her. And I think you're right, mate. I think with the money that's in the game, um, at the top level, um, I don't think, there would be an excuse moving forward for clubs not to start to consider that because what is a 50 to 100 grand a year salary to to a club at the top level to provide that service to its players? Because often players are reminded to go to the PFA for help, which is great if they can get it. But you wouldn't go straight to your union in a job if you had a HR department and you were suffering, would you? If you feel a bit low in work, you wouldn't go, I'm going to ring the union up. You, you'd speak to your head of HR or people director or whoever it may be. But footballs almost don't have that bridge. They have to just go straight and escalate it to the top, which they probably don't feel too comfortable doing. Now, I'm not. we can't speak on behalf of all clubs. I'm sure there are clubs out there that do have people in place to do these things. Um, but when you touched on before about a sporting director, it's, it's an important point because often if you, if you look at the sporting directorship course, or people who tend to do sport and director roles, it's often dual between the football and the finances. Um, they, they need to have a level of business acumen. And we've talked about it before where clubs will put the revenue ahead of the well-being. And it's another example of that, really, because if I owned a football club, while I'd like to have a sport and director to, to have some sort of synergy between on and off the pitch and the, the, the route that the club's heading in, the, if I had to pick between that and a head of well-being, I think I'd go for a head of well-being because you, without the players, you, you're nothing. Uh, in the same way without fans, you're not. So I think if you don't look after your players, you can't really ever expect them players to give you 100% in return because they're not just the product that you, you pick up and put down, but they're almost treated as if they are. So, um, yeah, I think... I'd, I'd be surprised if we don't start to see a head of well-being moving forward, mate. I, I really would, but um, it probably needs to happen quicker than it is. Yeah, you need somebody to, to almost bite the bullet and do it and see how it works. Because as you say, it's you know, I don't know we're proposing this this thing almost in you know in theory that this might be an idea, and and and, and it would obviously need more looking into as to exactly who that person would need to be, what their qualifications should should entail and you know what their role is going to be but investing in that for a club at the top level would probably be a small amount and even if we just i think the difficulty is that you'd be looking at okay well what do we get back in terms of 
performance so you have to look at it as a separate thing to performance apart from like a tangential thing so you kind of just look at it as we're just going to make this a nicer environment for our employees to come to work to and make it a nicer place for the people that we employ and the people that are you know that we have a duty of care to because they're our employees are having the best experience that they can have in what is an incredibly pressurized environment one other thing that gary was talking about was the importance of ensuring that you're always asking twice there was a bit of a Twitter campaign, a, a social media campaign a few years back about when you'd ask someone if they're okay, ask them are they really okay? And that was quite interesting, wasn't it, Ant, in terms of the type of stuff that we speak about? Yeah, it, it's um, it's one of those things that you, you get told and, and you see it everywhere, you know, it's okay not to be okay and you, you take it on board. And, and largely, I imagine for, for people, they don't do loads with it, but it's still, that's never been the, the issue, really. It's the... Mm-hmm finding out if someone's not okay so it'd be just a, a simple conversation and it can be at any any moment really you know if, if you need if you feel that something's changed something's not quite right uh, with one of your friends or, or colleagues you know you're going to see them more often than not ask and then if they say oh look i'm okay i'm, I'm, I'm fine maybe just try and reframe the question a little bit maybe go ask a little bit more about how to how the week's going, how the day's going, you know, what issues they've faced. Or... So I think that and that, that in turn creates a, a better friendship as well because it's not just a, I make you all right, and then a kind of like throwaway bit of a small talk conversation. It's a, oh, someone's actually asking me if I'm all right, I'm okay. And people appreciate that. I know I certainly do. And you can tell those people who, who genuinely like to ask you if you're all right, how things are going at home, how's the wife, how's the family, you know, those people are, are really good. We need more of them, basically. We need more people to turn around and go, right, how are you doing this week? And if someone comes back and goes, I'm all right, yeah, whatever. And then let's ask it again. Let's, let's just, it's not prying and it's not trying to make people feel uncomfortable, but ask it again in a different way. Try and try and see them because you, you're trying to care about them at the same time, aren't you? So I thought that was a really, really good point. And I think it's something that needs to, needs to keep happening and, and be reiterated. Yeah. I could, yeah. to be honest with you, Ant, I couldn't have put it any better myself, mate. And I think that's, I think in terms of somewhere to leave the episode on, I think that's that's absolutely spot on. Such an important message. So our next episode is out on Friday. We've got the next instalment of Under Flat Caps and Bowler Hats, uh, where we'll be discussing ex-Everton footballer George Harrison, brackets, not that George Harrison. And our next interview, our final interview of the series, will be out on Monday of next week with... Twitter funny man Johnny Sharples. If you want to find us on Twitter, you can find us at marking underscore man and don't forget to use the hashtag where's the talking lads. Ryan and thank you very much for your for your time and your contributions as usual today, chaps. Absolute pleasure. This has been the Man Marking Podcast. We're gonna leave you with Gary's quick fire questions and we'll see you again on Friday. Thanks for listening. Gary, so the name Gary is soon to be extinct. Are you proud to be one of the last Garys in existence? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, yeah, exactly. You got to represent. Um, <laughs> I might have to have a, another boy, and, and I might have to just name the children Gary. And just keep <laughs> it going. And do you think that the authorities should do more to keep the name alive? Yeah, I think we should have. Um, 
I don't know if you've seen recently, but um, Joe Lysett changed the name by default to Hugo Boss. Yeah, he did. So I think that we should have more top level, top level celebrity, celebrities or politicians changing the name to Gary. <laughs> so we should have Gary Johnson as Prime Minister. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Go, Joe. They'd have to call him, wouldn't they? Yeah. I've got yeah. an inkling that the, the person you referenced before, without saying his name, may be the answer to this question. But my question is, have you ever considered doing a longevity study on James Coppinger? That's a that's a great question. Um, <laughs> I think he will always be a current player. So yeah, he, he just keeps on going and going and going, doesn't he? Bit of a legend. Um, for so him. hopefully, be around a few more years. Yeah, he's absolutely amazing. My youngest son is called James. He's six years old, and my wife has named him, or according to my wife, she's named him after her dad. But I keep telling him he's named after James Coppinger, <laughs> which is the truth. TG Tips or Yorkshire Tea? Oh. I can't believe you asked me that question. Yorkshire tea, 100%. Yeah. That's never in doubt. <laughs> and if there's no Yorkshire tea, I'd go without. Good man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Gary, do you prefer the Keepmote Stadium or the Bellevue Stadium? If I could put the Bellevue pitch in the Keepmote Stadium, that'd be perfect. Because Did any, any three of you go to Bellevue at any time? I did, yeah. And then we've been the key the, the pitch was brilliant. Okay, because the, the Bellevue Stadium was, although I've got lots of happy memories from there, well, I'll say a, lot, a, a couple of happy memories from there, the stadium was just a mess, but the pitch was one of the best in the country. Um, but then, like growing up in, in a popular side terrace um, or on any terrace, you'd have a, it feels like you've got a better atmosphere. Whereas, obviously, now in an all seat stadium, you, you tend to lose, in some games, you lose that a little bit. Some games it's really good, but sometimes it is a little bit quiet or the acoustics aren't brilliant but like I say the pitch the old pitch in the new stadium that would be spot on Would you rather see Doncaster win the FA Cup or England win the World Cup? Doncaster win the FA Cup every time I always support England when they're playing but I'm, I'm so used to that disappointment and and failure the builders up every time don't they think oh this is our year and it doesn't work out um, but yeah Doncaster winning the FA Cup um, or just a, one season in the Premier League will do me. It was so much fun in the Championship. And then just to, even if, you know, like Barnes did, you get in the Premier League and you get beat every week, just that chance of having to tour the country, going to all the brilliant stadiums, watching the best players, then I'd be happy with that. Gary, is it a steak and kidney pie or is it a steak and kidney pudding? Pie, 100%. Yeah, correct answer. Yeah. Gary, yeah. can you say for us, um, John Macken, it's not a steak and kidney pudding. <laughs> okay. John Macken, it's not a steak and kidney pudding. It's a pie. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Gary. He, he was adamant it was a pie. Yeah. Yeah, he was adamant. We, we were telling him he was wrong. <laughs> um, Gary, have you, ever, have you ever cried at the football? I've had the, the biggest one, the, the best one for me is talking about, I mentioned my dad that I've, ne I've only seen my dad cry once and he's a Grimsby Town fan. And it was at Wembley when they won the, um, the National League playoff finals to get promoted back into League Two. Yeah. And I, I, I think we won 3-0 or something and me and my dad were behind the goal when Nathan Arnold scored the, the last goal in the last minute or something. And I could see my dad holding it all in. And I'm thinking, just just let it out. So I put my arm around him and said, come on, Dad, let it all out. And he just broke down in tears. 
So I took that opportunity then to quickly pull out my phone and, and take a selfie as quick as I could. Because <laughs> yeah. that is the only time I've prophesied my dad break down and cry. That's Just amazing. that whole uh, emotion of getting back. Six-year absence 